This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We've got something really interesting for you today. Chris, what have you got and found us? Today we've got uh, John Sadler, who is a li- who has a lifelong interest in military history, and over 40 books, including Scottish Battles, Glencoe, and the Battle of Flodden, 1513. And he's here to talk to us about his new book, Hot Trod, A History of the Anglo-Scottish Border. So uh, welcome, John. How are you? Good afternoon. Very well, thank you. This is going to be really interesting. I was actually up there this summer, um, and just the complete sheer number of castles tells you that this has always been a contentious area of Britain. Um, we think of the border, Highly contentious. Yeah, we think of the border as quite solid. Um, that's not the case, is it? Uh, no, that's right. The, the border line it was drawn between England and Scotland effectively after the Battle of Carham in 1018. Uh, prior to that, the old kingdom of Thumbria has certainly stretched as far north as the Firth of Forth. And the border area, or the border marches, as they became known, was a frontier. At the time, it was called a threep, which means a wasteland. And from the beginning of the Anglo-Scottish border wars in 1296 up to 1603, the Union of the Crowns, it was a contested area. And the people who lived there became used, inured, to endemic warfare. Indeed, on the English side, most of the families living in the Upland Dales, Tyndale, Kirkadale, Ridgedale, were seeded there by Edward III, uh, whilst he was focusing mainly on conquering France. He had to keep the back door secure. And these were, if you like, Poundland samurai. They were hard men sent up to the north to hold the frontier against the Scots by force of arms. That was it. It was very easy to switch them on, but the hard part was switching them off when the two nations weren't so in reality, there were 300 years of either full-scale war or intermittent war or local war or gang fights, and whole generations grew up inured to this type of endemic violence. 
it's also as well, when you say 300 years of warfare, you said something there about the control. I mean, they are hundreds of miles away from London and any centralised control, are they? Was it difficult to, to monitor what's going on, have any control over what's going on? Uh, yes, the, from the middle of the 13th century, there was a system set up to which both governments adhered. Uh, which was a system of border wardens, that is to say government-appointed officials who had responsibility for a certain sector of their respective borders. And by the time of Queen Elizabeth, there were three border marches on either side, an East March, a Middle March, and a West March, with a warden, an officer in charge of both, with a deputy. The really wild areas, wilder than the rest, Liddesdale and uh, Tyndale, had keepers, that was like sub-warden officials, whose specific responsibility were these particularly dangerous areas, where these upland mafia, these were cross-border criminal alliances, uh, proliferated. Uh, part of the problem was that, uh, as you've just mentioned, the borders are a long way from London. They're not that far from Edinburgh, but central control in Scotland was never as powerful as it was in England. And on the Scottish side, the Office of Border Warden became hereditary, particularly in the East March, where the powerful human family expected generation after generation to be made warden. Uh, when King James V demurred and installed a French officer instead, the humans tracked him down, killed him, and cut his head off, uh, just to make a, a point, presumably. On the English side, uh, the Crown preferred not to appoint local magnates because they were thought to be uh, too deeply embroiled in all forms of criminality. The Percys and the Devils shared the wardenship during the 15th century, which allowed them to pursue their own particular internal civil war. And one of the more colourful characters in the 16th century was Sir John Forster, the English Middlemarch warden, who held office for over 50 years. He didn't retire till he was in his mid-90s, swearing that his best years were still ahead of him. Now, you could say that Sir John knew about every single crime that was committed in his march, because generally they were committed to his instructions, and he took a share of the proceeds. So the reality was that control never fully operated, and very often the border wardens was much a part of the problem as any kind of solution. I'm loving the notion of uh, Poundland Samurai. Uh, <laughs> that really tickled me. Um, but, uh, from, from your work, what was your favourite cross-border interaction? Well, I, I think that has to be. I mean, there's a number, quite a number in spring to mind. Perhaps the most famous uh, is the raid on Carlisle Castle, which was in 1596. Carlisle, of course, was the bastion of the English West March, and the warden at the time was Lord Scroop, a rather precious individual. His opposite number was Walter Scott of Buccleuch, the bold Buccleuch, as he was known. And this is the kind of man who would make your average modern serial killer blush with envy. A uh, bit of a desperate character by any circumstances. And most of the leading border villains, and there's a lot of them, were his clients. He was very annoyed on a Tuesday. Now, Tuesday was effectively a day when border justice was dealt out and where anybody who didn't actually have charges leveled against him was inviolate from dawn to dusk. You could be the biggest villain on the borders, but if there was no charges outstanding against you, nobody could touch you on the day of truce. Present at a day of truce in the early part of 1596 was one Kimont Will Armstrong. Now, Kimont Will was one of the leading Reaver figures of his day, a thoroughly unpleasant and violent character, responsible for a whole slew of murders, enslavement, and uh, stealing anything that would or even wouldn't move. 
He taunted his English opposites at the truce day to the extent they couldn't stand it anymore. And they seized him. They grabbed him, contrary to law, and dragged him off to Carlisle Castle, where he was effectively kept in close confinement within the yard wall of the castle. Now, the Buccleuch wrote letters to Scrooge protesting that this was illegal. This was in breach of border law, which it was. The English ambassador ordered Scrooge to release his prisoner, but Scrooge would not. He was determined somehow to make an example out of King Mark Will. It was probably rather savouring the fact that, uh, that uh, Buccleuch was embarrassed that he couldn't appear to procure the release of his man. Well, obviously, diplomacy fails. Buccleuch was ready to move on to other means. And one dark and stormy night in the late winter of 1596, 80 men set off from the Scottish side to ride to Carlisle, to attack Carlisle Castle and spring Kinmontville by force. Now, 80 men against Carlisle Castle? It seems impossible. One of the strongly defended fortresses in, in Europe at that time. Good news from Buccleuch's perspective was that the raid would actually be an inside job. Scrope wasn't a real boarder. He didn't understand how things work. Buccleuch had bribed two of his land sergeants, the Carlton brothers, pretty dodgy pair by any standards to leave the postern gate open the scots had ridden through the the uh, ridden through the english west march and nobody was looking because the grahams who were the universal facilitators of the region had made sure nobody was looking they reached the walls of carlisle castle amazingly no sentry seemed to see them they entered into the castle they took kinmont will out of his uh, out of his lodging because he wasn't amazing enough he hadn't been put in a cell and he wasn't in chains and they carried him off to save him. He rode off into the dark winter's night, and nobody saw them. Nobody saw anything, in fact. The Lord Scroop returned to his castle the next day. Of course, he found his prize prisoner had gone, and there was egg all over his face. We suspect that James VI of Scotland actually had a damn good laugh over this. It's quite possible that Queen Elizabeth had a bit of a laugh as well. She summoned the clue to London to answer for his answer for his misdeeds, but he was left a slap on the wrist and went back to commit many more misdeeds. Uh, my favourite tales. Yeah, that, that is amazing. You've got to love the, uh, especially when both monarchs are finding amusing. Yes. That's yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? So we're kind of talking about banditry and just little groups of lunatics going at each other back and forth across the border. But there must be as well clashes between armies, the armies of England and Scotland. Oh, yes, indeed. I mean, the, this simmering violence on the border regularly exploded into full-scale war. Sometimes the Scots would invade England, sometimes the English invaded Scotland. You couldn't say that one side was better or worse than the other. Generally, the English won all the battles. The Scots' tactical formation, which were densely packed bodies of spearmen called shultrums, very effective in the right circumstances, failed against the English longbowmen, these great uh, uh, missile troops. So battles like Caledon Hill in 1333 uh, and uh, Devil's Cross in 13, then perhaps most dramatically, Flodden in 1513, <coughs> turned out to be major victories for the English. Having said that, even though they suffered terrible losses in these battles, the Scots were never carried. And whilst the English invaded many times, they never succeeded in achieving total domination of Scotland. Perhaps the ultimate irony of the border wars was actually ended, not when a king of England became king of Scotland, but when the king of Scotland also became king of England, when James VI also became James I in 1603. 
I'm kind of interested to know, further back in history, Edward I, how does he, how does his actions um, affect this region? Uh, Edward I Longshanks, great and yeah. terrible king, as he rightly called, um, what became a major player. In 1280, there was no clear claimant to the Scottish throne. There was a whole raft of claims who immediately, inevitably, started fighting among themselves. Scottish Parliament, anxious to prevent the disintegration of the kingdom, called on Edward I, who was the late king's brother-in-law, who had never shown any hostile intent to Scotland. Indeed, relations between two men had been very cordial. They asked Edward to adjudicate on who was the rightful claimant. There was about two dozen claimants at this point. And Edward set up a full judicial process. He was the chairman of the uh, panel of judges, but there were other judges. He allowed all of the claimants time to prepare their evidence, to submit their cases, and have their lawyers make representations. Eventually, he decided that the true king was John Balliol. He had the best claim. Uh, Balliol was an Anglo-Norman nobleman uh, who, who's perhaps best known for his great castle at Barnard Castle. Balliol was... Um, from a Scottish perspective, not a particularly good choice. He was a weak man who had no real interest in Scotland. But what he had done, all the claimants had done, they had all sworn before the hearings were held that whoever became king of Scotland would bend his knee to Longshanks. The king of England was his in charge. All of the claimants, without hesitation, swore that the Scottish estates, the palm, did not ratify their, their uh, promises because they did not wish, obviously, to see Scotland become subject to England. And Balliol's nobles, tiring of his vacillation and weakness, forced him to rebel against Edward. This was not a good decision. Edward came north with an army. The Scots were totally unprepared. The English army took and sacked Berwick, uh, and it is said that some 7,000 citizens were murdered during the course of the rampage. And the Scottish army, what was left of it, was defeated at Dunbar. Edward then stripped Balliol, who was now called Tomb Tabard, stripped him of his insignia as King of Scotland and decided that Scotland was no longer a kingdom. He abolished the Kingdom of Scots. He would refashion Scotland as a province of England, exactly as he'd done with Wales. Longshanks had formed this. He'd made it work in Wales. He would make it work in Scotland. And he therefore sent, uh, established a provisional, provincial governor, Hugh de Warren, uh, to oversee Scottish affairs, and then went home, thinking job. All the Scottish nobility, without exception, swore again to accept Edward as their overlord. That meant anybody who rebelled was not fighting a patriotic war. They were not a chivalric opponent. They were simply a disobedient vassal, a traitor, and to be dealt with accordingly. Edward was the middling sort. Uh, William Wallace and uh, Murray of Petty. Now, Wallace, uh, contrary to what you might see in the movies, uh, never, would never dreamed of being seen dead in a kilt. They weren't invented. He certainly wouldn't have uh, worn woad. Uh, that would have gone out of fashion a thousand years before. He was a gentleman, not a commoner. And as far as I'm aware, he never came from Australia. Uh, Mel Gibson and his love of the English. <laughs> Loves us, yeah. From studying the War of Independence, I get very annoyed by the Patriots. <laughs> With good reason, yes, or yes. part two, as it's referred to. <laughs> Um, moving on to um, the archaeology, is, is there anything from the archaeology that can tell us about the about the region? Um, there has been there have been numerous attempts at battlefield archaeology, and there will be more. I was involved with an archaeological survey on behalf of the Battlefield Trust and the Thumbling National Park of the Otterburn Battlefield, which is taking place by stages, also been delayed by COVID over the last couple of years. And Chris Burgess, who was the county archaeologist, had, I think, about five seasons 
excavating the battlefield of Flodden. And in the course of that time, he and his team uncovered the footings of the foundations of the Scottish defences on Flodden Hill, which was the initial Scottish position prior to them having to about face and move across to Brankston Hill. And these archaeological investigations did reveal quite a lot about the nature of field fortifications during the early 16th century. The Scots had the benefit of French and Italian advisors and engineers, and these field defences turned out to be very sophisticated. However, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Any other tangible traces of the battlefield, any nice tasty bits of armor, swords, etc., uh, did not come to light. There was nothing was found. And the holy grail of battlefield archaeologists the mass grave, and there have to be mass graves, something like eight or 10,000 Scotsmen died on that field, and probably more than 1,000 English. Uh, and yet there has never been any satisfactory trace of the mass graves. One survivor we do have, however, is called the Siloan's Sword. Uh, I was part of an archaeological team back in 1986, which investigated the site on the Ottoman training uh, ranges at Siloan's where the army with their metal detectors had found an anomaly. They were looking for unexploded ordnance. And when this was dug, we found the fragments of a sword, a medieval sword. Now, at the time, I dated the sword to about 1250 to 1275. It's never been subject to full rigorous current uh, scientific analysis. It's hoped that that might take place under the Aegis of the Royal Armies at some point. But this Siloan sword, I have suggested, this is just my suggestion, um, is possibly, I'm going to say probably, a relic of the battlefield at Otterburn. Uh, it lies, this, which was 1388, a long time afterwards. The swords were recycled. They were valuable items. They were handed down from father to son. And where it was found is on the direct line of the retreat of one flank of the Scottish army, which was driven off the field by the English early in the battle. And we have had a replica full of a full and accurate replica of the sword commission, which can now be seen in Elsden Church. So that's one survivor. But that apart, archaeology hasn't yet, yet, yielded uh, many finds for us. Wow, that's, that is quite a find, though, especially oh, as yeah. a yeah. sword. How do the Norse and the, and the Vikings fit into the story? Well, the period of the Norsemen, obviously, uh, predates that of the Border Reavers. There were a number of the border families, or names as they're called. They're not clans. They kept getting called clans by family history, but they're not. And bad news is the border families, the border names, never had tarts. 
if you had offered the Earl of Douglas a tartan in 1388, he'd have had you hanged. Now, the Norsemen, obviously, were active in Northumberland, and indeed in the southern part of Scotland, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. And the Armstrongs, for instance, certainly claim their descent. The Norsemen uh, were involved in the fixing of the border in 1018, if you like. It effectively comes to an end in England with the Battle of Stamford Bridge in September 1066, prior to Hastings. So, although the, 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 if you like, the DNA of the Norsemen is probably present all over the border, because they've clearly got the same mentality, um, yeah, you can't really say, well, the Norsemen were in any sense influential in creating the border wars or this period of three centuries when England and Scotland were actively at each other's throats. Uh, they did have a tendency to disrespect borders though, if it was in the... Oh, totally. Uh, basically totally. land on any, any shore that's got money and... and Absolutely. Or slaves. That's really what they were after, was slaves. Absolutely. And it was the, from memory, it was the North... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Norwegians who are more active towards Scotland and the Danes more active towards England. Uh, yes, that, that, that seems to be generally correct. Um, and the great army which landed, so, which destroyed Northumbria in 865, 866, uh, seems to be largely a Norwegian formation. Of course, all these armies of the period would attract mercenaries and um, guns for hire, if you like, freelancers from everywhere. But yes, uh, primarily we associate the influence in this northern part of England, so it's got as being perhaps more Norwegian than Danish. I, I, vaguely, I vaguely remember one of my uh, lecturers, um, Barbara York at King Alfred's College, when we were doing Alfred, and she described the, the Norwegians as a more virulent form of Viking than the Danes. I think the Danes would have been deeply upset, actually, about that. <laughs> I'm sure the Danes thought they were just as bad as the Norwegians. So um, uh, Ivar the Boneless and his brothers uh, were, uh, were, a, were a pretty salty crew. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason, isn't there, that um, George Martin used this this re like this history to create Game of Thrones. It's because it's bonkers and insane and violent, and he stole things from all over this, didn't he? Um, I know the Red Wedding happened in Scotland, didn't it? Um, another comparative is uh, the British Wild West. Is this fair? <laughs> I do believe George uh, may well have used these uh, last. As inspiration. Uh, as to the Wild West, um, I don't offend any of my American listeners, but the edge of the border rivers was a lot tougher and more violent than the American West. The Wild West in America doesn't really last that long at the end of the Civil Wars until the 1880s, so you had 20 years. On the borders, you've got 300 years. And the bad news is that contrary to what you see in most Westerns, there were relatively few gunfights in the Old West. And there was never any which resulted in hundreds of casualties, as you often see in TV, uh, either TV series or movies. The gunfight, the Oki Corral, which is one of the most violent of all the Western gunfights, resulted in three fatalities. Now, if you take the Battle of Drive Sands in 1593, a gang fight 
between the Johnsons and the Maxwells, uh, there were over a thousand Kashmiris. And that went on for 300 years, not for 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I guess the, the Wild West itself is kind of romanticised in movies and, and song and uh, the Anglo-Scottish border is, I don't want to say forgotten, that feels overkill, but it's not as talked about, especially, by, I mean, I live in Kent, so it's miles away from me. <laughs> it probably doesn't feature in many, uh, many conversations in Kent. And in a way, it was overlooked because once King James VI had imposed his brand on the borders, he wanted to eliminate the border and create the Middle Shires, as he called it. And his means, really between 1603 and 1610, were violently repressive. This was ethnic cleansing to use. Uh, it, was, it was done by the sanction of the law, but effectively he purged the borders of the wilder spirits. Some he hanged, some he sent out to fight in the Low Countries, some he sent out to fight in Ireland. Um, and his objective was to bring peace by fairly draconian means. And by and large, severe and savage as the repression was, it was successful. And then the reavers were just forgotten. They were buried. Nobody really wanted to remember. It was a very dark past. It just wasn't the kind of thing you wanted to talk about. Because when I was young, uh, nobody talked about the Great War. My grandfather's war, but nobody talked about it. It's only very recent people have started to talk. Uh, really since the 60s and 70s, people have started to talk about the Great War. So the reavers were just forgotten until they were reinvented by the greatest showman of all time, apart from Freddie Mercury, who was, um, what a Scott. Scott reinvented the borders. He reinvented Scotland. He reinvented the Highlands as a tourist attraction. Scott was a great writer, a brilliant man, and his evocations are wonderful, but they bear very little resemblance to history. And he romanticizes the borderers in his ballads, Young Lockenbar, as these kind of Aeroflame Robin Hood characters. They weren't. They were thugs. They were mafia. Yes, the land they came from was broken, but they're the ones who broke it. So there is nothing actually romantic or noble about them. They were all a bunch of criminals, really. And the world, if we're honest, was far better off without them. I think they are obeying a big brand new castle. And as Alex said earlier, there, there are quite a few along the borderlines. So let's pick a castle. And uh, you talked about Hardbottle Castle. Yes, indeed. What's yeah. the history of Hardbottle Castle? Hardbottle Castle is an interesting one because it is, um, strategically speaking, the cork in the bottle. It stands uh, at a point in the Thumbland in Cokerdale where the harsh upper Cokerdale area merges with the much softer lowland area, which of course is agriculturally productive. And it may be there was an Anglo-Saxon uh, burr or small settlement at Harbottle, we don't know. It really begins to gain fame or notoriety with the Umfravilles, who are a very powerful Anglo-Norman family, who like many of the Anglo-Norman martial laws, pretty much had a fair degree of autonomy in their own marches. They had to, their jobs to fight the Scots, basically, keep the back door closed. And the Umfravilles originally built their Martin Bailey Castle, tremendous traces of which survived at Elston. And then Henry II, who he knew a bit about the board, ordered them to move to Harbottle. He perceived that as a better site. And they then fortified Harbottle originally as a timber Martin Bailey style castle. And then eventually that was replaced in stone, shrank in size. And it has a shell keep. And there's the portions of the keep which survive, portions of the curtain wall which survive. Most of the stone courses robbed out to build Harbottle Village. So you can see bits of Harbottle Castle all over the village. And it remained. It was the base for the Umprovilles for several centuries. Then it came into the hands of the, the Tailbois family and the Percys in the 15th century. 
the 16th century, it was a base for the border wardens. Uh, Lord Dacre entertained Margaret Tudor, who was the widow of James IV there, in the wake of Flodden. And gradually over the 16th century, like most of the border castles, it fell into disrepair. And eventually the Whitwins who acquired the site used a lot of the stone to build the modern, if you like, the 17th, 18th century Harbottle Castle. The castle just stands there, these gaunt fingers of stone. And George MacDonald Fraser memorably referred to Hermitage Castle in Liddersdale as sod off in stone. The English equivalent is Harbottle. Yes, sod off in stone. Um, people, when they see the model of what we have made from the footprint, in 2016, they look at it and say, well, it's a bit mean, isn't it? Doesn't look much like Camelot. Well, no, it doesn't, because these aren't Camelot, these places. They're forward operational bases. They're fire bases. They're a set of bunkers. This place was built to be hell against a powerful and regularly threatening enemy. And it was for centuries. I just think George MacDonald Fraser's got the best turn of phrase ever. Oh, brilliant. Him and Churchill, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I think visited some of those castles. Sod off in stone is pretty accurate, though. The, yeah, I mean, coming over the hill and seeing one of them, you would have thought, bugger. Yes, you would, yeah. Especially if the gates are closed, yeah. <laughs> so we talked We talked about Edward I, and we're, we're going to come back to James I slash sixth, because mm-hmm. as you rightly point out, this is, this is sort of the end of the period. But can we just shoot for the middle with you and talk what? about how the Wars of the Roses affected this region? Certainly. Um, you could say, now remember, most histories, other than mine, would say the Wars of the Roses kicks off with the Battle of St. Albans, first Battle of St. Albans in uh, spring, April 1455. Though I and various other historians say it actually began two years earlier when there was an armed clash, or a gang fight, frankly, um, between the Percys and the Nevilles. Now, they, of course, were the two leading magnational families in the region. They were related by marriage, but they would have fitted perfectly into the Game of Thrones scenario. And when Hotspur, famous Henry Hotspur, Shakespeare's Hotspur, rebelled against Henry IV in 1403 and was killed at Shrewsbury, his lands were attainted. Percy's lost for a while everything they had. And the main winners in this redistribution were the Nevilles, who scooped up an awful lot of Percy manners. Hotspur's son, who became the second Earl of Northumberland, spent 30 years clawing this all back as much as he could. But there were still certain key properties, key manners, which were, um, remained thorns in the flesh of the Percy's as long as their Neville relations hung on to them. And just to complicate matters, Neville of Raby, um, that's the Eastern Nevilles, as opposed to their Western cousins, also hate each other. Yeah? Um, it wasn't just families that fought, it was families within families, just, just to add a real uh, um, Game of Thrones twist. And this rivalry between the Percys and the Nevilles in the weak reign of Henry VI, who was ineffective, and of course, uh, whose throne was maintained by a series of variously grasping and incompetent uh, surrogates. Percys and the Nevilles effectively started fighting among themselves, and royal authorities wasn't simply enough to stop them. And then in due course, the Nevilles are drawn into the orbit of Richard Duke of York, the Percy's then automatically gravitate toward the orbit of Somerset and King Henry's course. So the two leading northern families become polarised, one representing Lancaster, the other York. And the second Earl of Percy dies in battle, the third Earl of Percy dies in battle at Towton, and the borderers themselves have a field day during the Wars of the Roses. 
Margaret of Orange's great army, which she lumbers south in the wake of her victory at Wakefield, contained an awful lot of orders. And the Southern chroniclers are shrill, not to say hysterical, in their condemnation of these uh, Bominantes Boreales, these roaring northerners, who shift the place like a plague of locusts. Uh, now, as a northerner, of course, I object to that. Uh, it's a perfectly fair description. A typical is pretty rough as Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 